You are listening to Sustainable Design Podcast with Anastasia Bachikara. Hello, everyone. I hope you are staying safe and well. In today's episode, I'm talking with Hydran Mompetron. She is a director of sustainability initiatives and faculty at Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles. Hydran has quite a saturated journey, studying with biology, environmental management degree from Harvard, and even projects with NASA and nuclear power plant. We'll provide in-depth and shorter definitions of sustainability, briefly unpack climate change and life cycle assessment, and as usually will provide resources and inspiration for you to make this world a better place whenever you are. Notes and links to all mentioned resources are available on episodes page. Let's jump right into it. I found early on in teaching that every student came into the class with their own definition of sustainability. And in the early years, that basically was recycling. Recycling was how students define sustainability. And so it became my task to kind of lead a conversation in the class around, well, is that really what sustainability means? Um, and the, what we ultimately come to is that sustainability is the biggest idea out there. It is not just about recycling. It is so big, it just, it blows your mind. It's one of the most optimistic views we can have of the future, that we are going to, through thinking and creativity, be able to manage our lives and coexist with nature over many, many generations. Um, so that's a, that's a long-winded way of defining sustainability. There are two definitions. One, of course, many people are familiar with, the one that the United Nations proposed, um, that in the age of the Anthropocene, sustainable development meets the needs of the present um, without impacting the ability of future generations to meet their needs, and on a healthy planet, the, the recognition that we as humans depend on a healthy planet. Without a, a robust, uh, regenerative, natural world, we ourselves can't, you know, sustain, sustain ourselves. So that's the United Nations framework, very big, very broad, encompassing the environment, encompassing the economy, and encompassing society. Um, for me, however, uh, as, a, as a designer, I found that the language uh, had to be adapted, the sustainability language. And so I took a, a well-known definition of design, design equals form and function, and added sustainability, that today design e is the sum total of form, function, and sustainability. And that kind of opens up the student's idea that, okay, it's not just about making beautiful things that work well, that unless it is also sustainable, unless it also meets these criteria, it is not, it is a failed design. It, it, uh, 
it must uh, be a priority of design to include sustainability. So, I want to wear it as a T-shirt, form, function, I have sustainability. <laughs> I should have brought it with me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, but is it available somewhere? Because I definitely would. It's available whenever I order more of them. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll put you on the list. <laughs> yeah, put me on the list and I'll be sure to refer any anyone else who wants to be on that because I think it's really brilliant, very short and condensed definition, very visual and easy to understand form plus function plus sustainability equals design. Yeah. And I think that really going to be and is actually already in many ways ways uh, the way we design and the way careers are shifting that mm-hmm. in a lot of places without understanding sustainability is probably not possible to get a career developed or even get mm-hmm. hired. Um, you mentioned Anthropocene. So could you maybe quickly define what it is for people who are not familiar? Sustainability is an idea, but the Anthropocene is now a term embedded in science. So the Stratigraphy Society, um, after many, many years of observation of the geology of the planet, has noticed that human activity has permanently changed the geology. We've diverted streams, we've uh, moved ecosystems, we've extracted things from rocks and soil, we've moved stuff around to the point that um, we've left a permanent mark on the earth. So given that, it's time to name the new epoch. We have moved from the Holocene into the Anthropocene, the period in which Human has ex- humans have exerted influence on the planet, including kind of the dumping of our remains. If a million years from now, 10 million years from now, we dig down into the earth, you will see the layer known as the Anthropocene. And we are in that right now. That's kind of mind-blowing too. And the layer probably will have some plastic Coke bottles. And Absolutely. All the disposable plastic, unless we figure out how to turn that waste into back into materials and create a lot of financial value from that, which I'm True. hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see which, how Anthropocene is going to look in the future. And would you talk about three E's or and four P system? Because I sure. think that is also something quick and easy to remember. And I think something that listeners can take away to their work, to their practice, to their conversations. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, Sometimes a wordy definition doesn't have that visual cue that we like to have uh, as a kind of aid to memory. So some very uh, clever people uh, broke sustainability down into, uh, in the case of the three E's, into three buckets. Um, One bucket is the environmental, one is the economy, and the other is equity. And the idea being that only when those three, those circles, those buckets are um, put together, do you get sustainability. The, the visual cue is alerting you to the fact that if you're just working, you know, with the environmental bucket and not the other two, then you can't really 
that will not meet the requirements for sustainability. You're working on environmental matters, but you really do have to consider human systems and economic systems. So those are the three E's. And the four P's, uh, which I particularly like, it, it looks like a square, and each corner has a P in it. And the P's stand for people, planet, profit, which sounds like the three E's, but then they've added policy because we have learned that without regulation, without oversight, without reporting, without transparency, um, without metrics, without measures, we really don't know if we are making progress towards this sustainability idea. So I, I rather like the the four P's, um, not that it adds a layer of bureaucracy, but that it adds a layer of accountability, which I think we have to accept if we're going to move towards a more sustainable system. That was very helpful for me to kind of like mark those down and carry further into my life. So uh, anyone who's listening to this, you can take the four P's or, or three E's into your conversations mm-hmm. next time you have yeah. with your friends at the lunch or with your parents explaining them what sustainability is. You can take those with you. And I think it's also important to unpack a little bit from your perspective, the notion of climate change. So imagine that you have the earth and around the earth is an atmosphere. It's made up of different gases. Those gases can trap uh, heat energy from the sun that that comes to us from space the more gases the more heat trapping gases the warmer it gets so hence the global warming the reason everybody talks about climate change now however is that um, it was felt global warming was a little confusing people thought it would that would be its effect it would just warm everywhere And what we really see is that that extra heat, that extra energy that gets trapped may be causing temperature rise or warming in some areas, but in other areas may result in uh, cooler temperatures or um, areas of greater snowfall, not less. So we're speaking of it in terms of climate change. Those are the effects of the warming, even though the... um, the IPCC does a very good job of uh, predicting what the potential consequences of the warming are. They look at various warming scenarios and predict the climatic changes based on that kind of warming scenario. And we, of course, are trying very hard to convince people to limit those heat-trapping greenhouse gases to prevent climate change from going into one of the less desirable scenarios where we, we basically lose control of our climate and all human systems that depend on that climate. Yeah, and what are the sources, what are the main sources of greenhouse gases, just to clarify? Warming is is happening and it will continue to happen because there is already 
and uh, there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of greenhouse gases up in the atmosphere. So we know it's going to continue warming. What we want to do is prevent it from warming beyond a certain threshold, because beyond that, our science tells us um, there are a number of catastrophic things that that can happen. So the big push right now is to prevent the temperature rise uh, to go beyond uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030. Uh, by 2050, hopefully stabilize the emissions. And that those are the big goals right now. However, if we have more years like we've had recently where we've been emitting more than we should, the uh, the p- possibility of uh, preventing us from overshooting that threshold gets smaller and smaller. What are the ways, what are the activity, human activities need to change in order to meet that goal? The one big one that I think we're all trying to also do personally is to decarbonize our energy sources. So that means energy for transportation and shipping and energy that is used to electrify and warm, you know, heat heat our homes. So we're all personally involved in um, trying to dial back. Uh, everybody has different um, uh, techniques. You know, we have the early adopters, the champions that go out and uh, swap out their gasoline-fueled car for an electric car. You can um, offset your the carbon in your energy supply by buying um, renewable energy credits. So there are some financial mechanisms for doing it. Uh, you can drive less. Don't drive on the weekends. You know, use uh, public transport that is hopefully. Uh, electric and the electricity being supplied by a non-carbon carbon fuel, uh, how you heat your water. So you you have uh, we as individuals and cities have control over much of that. Then it comes down to simply reducing consumption because the more the more things we acquire and consume, those things were probably made using energy and they were probably shipped from some distance. We have a, we have a globalized economy. We are procuring from many different places and uh, are able to kind of satisfy our needs uh, from, by purchasing you know, from all over the world, including our food now as well. Uh, we don't just eat local um we we seem to eat what we want whenever we want to and our global economy enables that so consciously consuming dialing back on the consumption so that we're not uh expending excess energy um on extracting materials or uh, manufacturing and shipping things so that I think is uh, something that cities and regions and humans, you know, can all do. 
the the larger question is how do we plan for a future where we don't quite know how the system is going to behave? How do we, instead of designing rigid systems like putting roads in one place, building fixed buildings, is do we have to be thinking about adaptable, adaptable cities and adaptable transport? That's that's another uh, layer of kind of design and management that goes beyond just your and my decision as to what what we wear or what we eat, um, and that of course interests designers quite a bit, and ins- uh, hopefully inspires us to uh, be be to welcome sustainability as the new paradigm. You know, to get us out of this consumption model, which has failed. And to be willing to uh, move all of our kind of creativity and uh, planning and ideas towards a model of sustainability. What are the steps, how to begin the shift and what it takes? What is the system of sustainability, how you see it? I often get asked by students, just tell me what's more sustainable. Just give me the list. You know, what materials should I use or what are the the top 10 sustainability best practices? Well, if it were only that easy, that doesn't work, though that is usually the the foot in the door for most designers. They begin to think about what if I design this so that it can be repaired or what if I designed it so it could be taken apart and all of the different materials recycled. Uh, so those those are these um, kind of quick, uh, surefire methods for tackling this big idea of sustainability. But you can't stop there because that will that will never never get you to true sustainability. Uh, for example, a great sustainability best practice is to make something more durable so that it lasts longer, and you have to buy fewer iterations of that product. Well, plastic is pretty durable. And in fact, that's the problem. It's so durable that it's everywhere and doesn't, and it's not going to be leaving anytime soon. So that's what I mean by you can have a, you can have a list of best practices, but it will, you cannot forget to look at the overarching picture. So Rule number one, start with the big, big picture. What is the, the system within which the thing you are designing or the service you are providing lives? Having, having um, some concept of what that system looks like, now you have to get more evidence or maybe some, some data that will help you make decisions. The, the method I really... I think is extremely powerful and is becoming increasingly an industry practice is that of life cycle um, assessment. Taking what it is you're designing, the system you're creating, and walking through the entire life cycle of that, of that product 
from the point at which things are extracted from the ground or grown or harvested through uh, refining, through manufacturing of parts, through assembly, through packaging, through shipping. Uh, maybe it goes into retail. Maybe it gets delivered to your home. Uh, the whole life cycle of use. Do, does it need water to run? Does it need electricity? Do you have to replace parts? And then what happens at the end of its so-called life cycle? What's the system that manages th that product when you no longer want it? Does it get repaired or refurbished and go to another user? Does it um, get taken apart and the, the parts that can be get recycled? You know, what happens to this, this idea that you have in your head for a product or a system? And life cycle assessment uh, is a tool for designers and development uh, engineers and teams to be able to prototype the um, behaviors of that product service system over its entire life cycle, not just during use, not just does the user like this? You know, do they like the flashing lights? Do they like the fact that it's blue? You know, that used to be our focus. You know, how good was that user experience? How well did it sell? Now it's all about, well, how does this product service system behave, you know, over its entire life cycle? And what happens at the end of its life cycle? So we are not just creating a model that replicates what this product could look like. We're prototyping what happens when that plastic part gets put in a landfill? Uh, what happens when that plastic bottle goes into the ocean? We need to be able to also prototype the environmental consequences. And the design should provide for um, what we would, um, we want to design out those negative consequences. Because frankly, once you've designed a product and uh, it goes out in the market, you can't make it sustainable if, it's, if you haven't thought this through to begin with. So life cycle thinking offers you a way to um, imagine what the, what the steps look like and where there's an opportunity to make an improvement. And it is, to my mind, the most powerful tool for... Uh, design practitioners to introduce and integrate sustainability into the things that they're making. And in a, in a way that's verifiable, you can quantify uh, what the impact is. How much does the energy that is used in the system contribute to climate change? Uh, are there toxins in the system? Um, what are the potential effects on the ozone layer, on ecosystem disruption, on species extinction. These are things that we as designers need to design for, not just the user experience. Was that type of more complex approach of understanding sustainability, do you have any advice on self-education tools maybe or resources online, like online platforms or courses or any type of information that you trust? There is uh, the sustainable packaging group. 
there's green blue. So again, there are really smart people in all these different sectors who have experience, who have are making that information available. You just need to go out there and find it. You also have global standards that businesses use. Uh, businesses use the Global Reporting Initiative as a way to track sustainability within the company. It's very comprehensive. It's not just environmental. It's social, cultural, and economic. So it will include things like what is the gender mix you know, of employees within the company? Uh, what is the gender mix at different levels of management? Uh, what are the opportunities for education? So these, these are standards that have taken years to develop. There's a lot of experience in actually applying them. All of that has already, it has been done for you. Just go get the list and you'll see what companies need, uh, uh, need to be tracking when they're trying to manage how uh, close they are to achieving their kind of sustainability goals. I believe in conversation before we started uh, this interview, we were talking about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and um, they're doing a lot of work on the circular economy. They have a terrific website with a resource tab. Click on that tab, and you will you will find a really well written, well researched documents that will bring you up to speed. The United Nations, UNESCO, they also have a rich trove of resources. Um, World Watch Institute. There's no end to information available to you that uh, is free and you know in the in the public domain. You can also take courses. So there's um, get going. You will be surprised at how interesting and enervating this will be to you kind of personally for your kind of creative, uh, get your creative juices flowing. Um, but the, the information's out there. I'm curious, what stirred you toward biology and sustainability in the first place to begin with before you went to Harvard, before you got your degree in environmental studies? Um, even biology already kind of relates to that. So what led you toward that direction? I grew up in a, in a designed house. I was the, my father was an architect. And um, I was encouraged to be creative. And it was always thought that I would become an architect and go into practice with him. Uh, and I, of course, being a typical, you know, rebellious teenager, I decided architecture wasn't, wasn't good enough. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to save the world. So when I went off to college, um, I got an undergraduate degree in biology and from there went into environmental engineering and really enjoyed it. Um, I think it, going into engineering satisfied certainly the designer, the designer in me. Um, and I did that for about 10 years and 
but had kept doing design, especially typography on the side. So became a graphic designer for 10 years, started a, started a company and started teaching at Art Center. And this word came up, sustainability. Never heard that before. And that was when? That was in like 2000. And it was, uh, it sounded a lot like environmentalism, which was the big movement kind of uh, that uh, kind of preceded when I went to college, but certainly was very much in the ethos of my college years. And I thought that they sounded very similar, interested myself in it more. And I thought, wow, this is even a bigger idea. And at that time, too, the climate change science was beginning uh, to build, and there was a more compelling, there was more compelling evidence of what was going on. So that really, I shifted completely, and I wanted to know, okay, given, given this change in the world, what, what does that mean for designers? And uh, Art Center gave me the opportunity to kind of develop a curriculum around design for sustainability. And I think the engineer in me also loved life cycle assessment. You know, I definitely uh, took to that very readily and uh, have been very, um, uh, have enjoyed learning about sustainability. There's never an end to what can be learned I think I like that aspect of it as well, that you don't get to the point where you're an expert in something. There's always more more to learn. And being in the classroom with students gives us both a chance to to learn together. Uh, I'm also curious about your environmental engineering experience um, where you got to work with nuclear and wind power. What's your opinion on nuclear energy as alternative energy to fossil fuel, does it worth the risk that it carries? Um, Because nuclear energy can produce a lot of energy in a short amount of time and cheaply, fairly cheaply, at the same time carrying this dramatic risk over radiation disaster in case over mistake for example, like Chernobyl has happened in Ukraine and results of that still carry on today yeah. and probably for another 100,000 years ahead. What's your experience with those and what's your opinion about different alternative renewable energies? So when I uh, first started working as an environmental engineer, the the nuclear industry was, nuclear power industry was very robust. Um and the company I worked for was building power plants all over the world. And different countries were developing their nuclear capacity. It was definitely the thought to be the energy source of the, of the future. And, um, and at the same time, uh, the environmental aspects of nuclear were being discussed. And so you saw the development of a, the so-called renewable energy industry. So uh, worked on geothermal power plants, uh, wind turbines were really beginning to take off and uh, worked on some very big wind farms, large, large machines, uh, megawatt, you know, size capacity. 
solar started coming on. So the the um, the idea was, well, we need an energy mix. We can't put all our eggs in the renewable basket or neither the nuclear basket. Um, with Three Mile Island, the partial uh, meltdown of the reactor, uh, that really set the country against nuclear, and we haven't built any since then in the United States. Other countries continue with their nuclear program. Famously, you know, France is mostly nuclear and exports a lot of those, exports that technology to other countries. So I am, I am torn. I read constantly up on the subject. I've heard, I've read some good reports on small nuclear, like taking spent fuel and using that uh, to produce energy that it could be done safely and would be a way to kind of use that spent fuel. Uh, do I think that we can build, you know, large nuclear power plants near cities, near urban centers? I don't think it's feasible. Uh, even if the technology uh, improved, the, the, even though the safety record is very good, but if the safety record got even better, um, I don't think that there is a, a will amongst society to accept nuclear. Germany, you know, has uh, is moving away from nuclear. So as far as the future, however, um, I keep reading about, you know, ever larger server farms and uh, the 5G and 6G and the f- I immediately think about, okay, where is the energy going to come from to make all of that possible? I don't think we have a, uh, we know what our path forward is going to be. So I'm sorry, I can't give you a yes or no. I'm still waiting to see what, what happens. I'm also curious, what can you share about NASA, what your experience working with them was like? So I, it was a project with NASA and the Air Force. They um, built a, um, a space shuttle launch and landing facility at Vandenberg Air Force Base here in California. Um, this was to enable the space shuttle to enter different kinds of orbits. Um, and on the one hand, NASA, because of its uh, the mission it has, it doesn't really think about sustainability. These are these are one-offs. You know, these are experiments that are meant to test humans and technology and build upon our uh, sciences. So looking at what something is made of, they're not, they're not asking themselves, can this be recycled, right? They're, they're asking themselves, can this perform? Can this, this take a, a human or a living thing you know, out into space, and can it come? Can it perform its mission? Um, so it was interesting that they needed uh, an environmental engineer on the project. I was there more to uh, look at the environmental consequences of the construction. 
So Vandenberg Air Force Base, because it has been an Air Force Base for so many years and not open to the public, it is virtually a pristine California coastal, you know, area with lots of um, native plants, native birds, native insects, um, endangered species, uh, lots of uh, Native American remains and artifacts. So I made sure that during the the design and siting and construction of the project, that any of these kind of uh, special plants, animals, and artifacts were not disturbed in any in any way. So I was more looking at the least turn habitat and um, uh, different uh, endangered plants and. Uh, outcroppings where Native American peoples had had used that as a living site, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I got to be on the base when they launched a lot of their their rockets, and um, and I also got to be in an area of California, kind of by myself, where it it felt like it must have always felt so that was that was a fun project who would you highlight which companies would you highlight or individuals as an example of successful sustainable practices i came across a company that's based out of the uk i've only emailed with the the these individuals um but i do have a website um it's a company called Edible Culture. And Chris and David run Edible Culture out of uh, Kent in the, in the UK. And I first learned about them when I was looking for uh, plastic-free uh, nurseries. Like, is it, is it possible to take plastic out of your garden, out of your kitchen garden, out of the trees, you know, trees that you transplant. I'm an avid gardener. Um, and as you know, we have a community garden at Art Center. How can we take plastic out of that whole system? Because uh, it just seems you go to a, a local nursery and everything's in plastic pots. And even the tools are made out of plastic and the ties and the the pro- the props you know they're they're all out of plastic so edible culture has taken that to heart and they have removed all the plastic from their nursery from the containers to the stakes even the if you were to buy compost or mulch they sell them uh, in almost like in bulk bins so you buy this reusable bag and you load it up with whatever material you want. You take it home, you use it, and you come back with that bag. So check out Edible Culture. Um, and Chris and David are the two people that run it, and they do answer your email. And then um, a couple years ago, I was on uh, uh, kind of an online conversation with a person, uh, a woman named Dawn Danby. 
And she was with Autodesk at the time uh, in charge of sustainable design. And I was very impressed by her. And she recently, in the last like year and a half, co-founded a group called Spherical. And uh, she has moved on to doing um, research and work in uh, design solutions and design strategies that incorporate new technologies into design in support of regenerative systems. So check out Spherical, check out Don Danby, and um, if you do end up reaching out to her, let's have let's have dinner. Um, <laughs> there is um, another uh, person that I've worked with um, for several years now. Uh, her name is Gun Denhart, and she is uh, from Sweden. She founded Hannah Anderson Children's Clothing years before kind of organic cotton was the rage. Um, and she's a successful, uh, successful entrepreneur with an extreme kind of environmental and social consciousness. And she embodies for me, she's an example of someone who crafted a career and a very successful business and never compromised on sustainability. She was thinking about the environment, about society and the economy long before sustainability became a word. So this is a shout out to Gun. Another question is, who would you nominate to be interviewed on this podcast to share some important knowledge in sustainability? Um, I would definitely ask Gun. Um, I think she uh, would maybe enjoy speaking to you. Uh, Rebecca Mendez, who is a colleague, she's a graphic designer, but heads up the design department at UCLA and is a, an artist who um, explores environmental and social issues. Uh, I think you'd find her very interesting. And um, Cindy Gilbert, she's with VentureWell now, but she used to be an instructor with the Biomimicry Institute, and I know your interest in bio-based materials. I think the two of you would have a fantastic conversation. Wonderful. Thank you. And a final question is, what is the main takeaway you want to leave our listeners or anything else you want to add before we wrap up? So Students ask me, looking at the future and the sustainability, can we make it? What's going to happen? Are we going to survive? I think if you are a, a creative person, you have to find strength in the fact that you have a vision. Because you're a creative person, not only do you see well, you can imagine what that future is. So my takeaway is train yourself to see, observe, do research, read, talk to people, impel yourself forward by becoming hyper-observant, hyper-knowledgeable, have confidence in the fact that you are a visionary. Apply that to sustainability. 
Thank you so much, Hydran. It's a real pleasure to know you, to learn from you, and to have you here today. So thank you for your time and your knowledge. Thank you so much. Thank you.